Welcome to The Logbook. I'm your host, Lucas Weekly. This episode's supported by you, the listeners, through Patreon. Head over to thelogbookpodcast.com for more information. Today, we'll hear from Phil Gardner about the history of his company, Gardner Aircraft Sales. It's really fascinating. I was lucky enough to be born in the absolute most exciting century that could be, you know. I was born in the 30s, and we, we had to deal with the Second World War, although I was only a youngster at the time. I didn't serve in the war, but, I mean, we still remember collecting metal for, from the meltdown, scrap metal, and the rationing that went on, and the fact that you couldn't get butter at all, and that's when they invented margarine. And Yeah, I mean, the butter went to the, to the government to support the troops, and, of course, there was, a, there was strict rationing of all that type of thing. You know, you couldn't get any fuel. You, had a, you got a sticker to put in your car, and you had a ration book for an A sticker, and I can't remember what those stickers meant. But if you worked at the plant making airplanes, you got to have, I think, an A sticker so you could get back and forth to the plant. You had so many gallons a week that you could get. It was a very interesting time. We, <laughs> I joined the National Guard in 1949 when I was 15 years old. I lied about my age, and um, a fellow that I knew in the National Guard signed for me and let me get in the National Guard. But I was a buck sergeant by the time I was 16 years old, and they shipped me off down to uh, Shepherd Air Force Base in Texas to go to A&E school. They called it A&P school. It was aircraft and power plant. I didn't go to college. When I got out of high school, I went to, I joined the National Guard, and they sent me off to, to go to A&P school. So then I could come back and be full-time with them, and I would have a full-time job. And in 1952, that was, that was a big deal. I had a problem at, at, at uh, the, uh, when I went down to A&P school, and I became allergic to the water. So they accelerated me through the classes. So... <laughs> A 30-day class would only take me 10 days. So uh, this happened about six months in, so I had about six months to go. And I finished up about 90 days too early when I, when I finally graduated and left and came home. And my job wasn't going to be ready for four months. So I had to do something. So I went to work for the, Martin, the Glen L. Martin Company in Middle River. And I made a dollar and 65 cents an hour. Fun fact, that's the Glen L. Martin Company that would later merge with American Marietta in 1961 and would then merge again with another aerospace company in the mid-90s called Lockheed, making what is today Lockheed Martin. It was an interesting job. I loved airplanes, and just as long as I'd be close to them. We worked on the line. So many things that happened, I can't begin to mention them all. So then my dad went in the Oldsmobile business, and then he, he talked, talked me into leaving Glenel Martin and coming to work for him, and that was the world's worst job to start with. He didn't have a parts manager, <laughs> and this place was built on the side of a hill, and in the center of the building, in the basement, was a, was a room about big as this room and that room with a dirt floor, and oh, it was, and no windows. And that was their parts department. And I, he didn't have a parts manager, so he decided that I would be his parts manager. He put me in there, and I hated that job. I had to deal with nuts and bolts and screws and 10,000 of these little widgets and all this. It drove me crazy. So finally, after about six months, I talked to him and let me come up on the showroom floor and 
getting into the sales business, you know, and that's when I started the sales business was selling Oldsmobiles. But uh, this this place must have been a stable at one time or something. I don't know what the hell it was. But uh, in 1950, it was 1954, and we went in the Oldsmobile business for the announcement of the 1955 Oldsmobile. Also, around this time, Phil took a handful of flying lessons in a Piper Cub with the hopes to get his pilot's license. However, that was interrupted for a while because... In 1957, it, was, it wasn't, but just a few years later that business got tough and, and uh, they closed up the dealership. And then I had to go work for somebody else selling cars, which I wasn't very happy with. But finally, I ended up at the Pontiac dealer. They had a um, good relationship with their people. I had worked for a couple of people that were just hard ass, and they were just, you know, just they were just hard to work for. They uh, that's when I started going over to the airport and getting into the, back into flying a little bit. Your normal schedule for the for your car dealers is to have three shifts a day, and what you'd do is you'd come in at nine, you'd work till noon, then you were off from noon till five o'clock with nothing to do. So typically, a lot of the guys would go to the racetrack or go to the bar or go to, you know, so. I found there was a little airport about 20 miles west of where our dealership was, so I decided I was going to hang out at the airport. I loved airplanes. So I would go out to the airport, and uh, I met some folks that had a, a flying club, and they had three airplanes, one of which was a Piper Colt. So I joined the flying club and started taking lessons in the Piper Colt. And uh, another fella that worked at a, at a competing Pontiac dealer far across town started to take lessons at exactly the same time. So we had this ongoing competition about who was going to get their license first. So, of course, we each had to earn our living selling Pontiacs and then rush out to the airport so that we could take our lessons. And you took your lessons 45 minutes to an hour at a time. And you had to have 40 hours to get your license. And we had to, we had to fly up from Baltimore to Frederick to meet the examiner because we didn't have an examiner at, at the little airport of Baltimore. So I needed 30 minutes more to be qualified for the 40 hours, and they let me leave and get the 30 minutes while I was flying to Frederick. So I arrived up there at exactly 40 hours, and he agreed that we could go ahead and take the test. I got mine the day before he got his, I think it was. But unbeknownst to me, it wasn't the day after. He had beaten me by one day. He got it the day before, <laughs> and I didn't even know it. So, But it was an interesting thing. During this time, Phil started to become a better salesman working in the car industry. Well, General Motors trained us to be salesmen. I mean, they, they'd send you to, in Fairfax, Virginia, there was a General Motors school. And you would go there twice a year uh, for two or three days. And, and they would teach you the latest techniques and have an empathy with the customer and uh, this kind of a thing, which was really excellent education, you know, and uh, the, the kind of training that they would give you. And it really helped. However, he also began to realize that he could use his skills selling more interesting vehicles. When I'd go to the airport to fly during my off period, I, I would pull their chain, the people that owned the dealership there, that it was run like it was 30 years ago, you know. And I keep telling them, that, you know, you need to do this to change a little bit, or you need to do this, or you put your signs over here. And finally, they got so sick and tired of listening to it, you know. And the, and the Piper distributor finally said, look, if you're so damn good at this, why don't you come to work for us, you know. And I thought that would be a pretty good idea. I had to take a really hefty pay cut to do it. Because by that time, I was making fairly decent money in the car business. But the airplane business couldn't pay anything. I ended up being the president of that flying club that I joined as a member uh, after about a year, and I ran that flying club till 1965. 
And then I went to work for Frank Marshall at, at the um, Marshall Air, the Piper distributor, who was in Manassas, but then moved, when I went to work for him, he moved up to Baltimore. Best job that I had ever. And my job was to go in every day, pick out a new airplane. I had, I had four territories that I had to cover. I had Leesburg, Winchester, Martinsburg, Virginia. Then I had Frederick and Clearview and Westminster. And another one that went up towards Aberdeen. Another couple of places up there, I can't remember. And then there was another one that I went to the Eastern Shore. But um, I'd go in on Monday morning and I'd pick out a brand new airplane and I'd fly to Leesburg and make sure that check on the dealership, make sure they had enough brochures and, and um, you know, had, if their customers needed any help with the demo or anything like that. Then I'd fly to Winchester and then I'd... So the next morning I'd come in, I'd pick out a brand new airplane again, and then I'd fly to Frederick and Westminster, and then I'd come in the next day. I did that four days, and then on the fifth day, on Friday, if we needed any airplanes picked up at Lock Haven, then we would fly up to Lock Haven and pick up the new stock, you know, and then fly. Or if, if we were really lucky... There was something ready in Vero Beach, and I'd have to get on the airliner and fly down to Vero Beach and pick that up and fly that back from, from there. That was a dream job that you had once in a lifetime. And then it came a time about two or three years after we were in business that um, the Piper distributorship, Mr. Marshall was in a, a lawsuit with the, the city of Manassas, Virginia. He had a little grass field where he, had hit, where he operated from, and they wanted to make a, a shopping center out of that. So they asked him to move over. They were going to supply him with another airport, another runway, and a huge, big distributorship building and all that sort of thing. And it never happened. And he waited and waited and waited. And it never happened. So he finally moved to Baltimore and moved his distributorship up there. Well, he sued him and won. And then they finally built him. A, they built the Manassas Airport. And he had a giant building with a with 20-foot ceilings inside with these huge three airplane showrooms that he could have since he won the suit he he made the city build this for him at some huge expense which is totally unnecessary but he had them so he made him build it so then he wanted to move from baltimore back to manassas and i didn't have any interest in going that way so i put together a group of individuals that bought out the dealership because there was a dual role the distributorships had a group of dealers that they represented, but they had their own dealership. Well, about that time, Piper decided that that was not a good idea and that the dealerships and the distributorships should be independent and they should be held separate. So that worked out to Mr. Marshall's advantage because he was anxious to move back to Manassas and leave the dealership there. And we sold that to the Magazine Brothers out of Washington. They gave me a 10% interest in the business for putting the whole thing together, you know. We all went to work together there after Mr. Marshall left and we still had the, our dealership. So I didn't go flying around to all these different places. I would just deal with the people that walked in the front door, whoever I could scrounge up. So unfortunately, the Magazine Brothers had their own way that they wanted to do business. And since the sales department <laughs> generated the major part of the income, they decided that it should have the major support of the overhead. We ended up with just a little bit of the net profit but a lot of the gross profit, but uh, they didn't see it that way. So they decided that our portion of the pie for the overhead would be like two-thirds of the, the cost of the building. And, and anyhow, I, I didn't get along with their bookkeeping, and I decided I'd go out on my own. And I went over to Bay Bridge Airport 
over on the eastern shore of Maryland and, and started a new operation over there, a Piper dealership. And I stayed there from about 1967 till about 1969 or 70. Then I went to work for Piedmont down in uh, Winston-Salem. Their idea at Piedmont was they were a Piper distributor and, and they couldn't be a Piper dealer. So they were going to put a used airplane distributorship together and they were going to have these places all over the country. And uh, so I went down there the first day of January and I, I even had, I had my 42 foot office trailer. They didn't have any space for me down there. So they said, bring your office, just we'll pay for it. Let's ship your office trailer down here and we'll set it up and you'll have your own office. You can have the whole thing. You know, blah, blah, blah. So we did that and I sat in January and all of January and most of February. And then finally, we had these meetings every Monday morning. They were promising that they were getting closer and getting closer. And I mean, they sent me to different places to keep me busy. And, and the Beechcraft sales manager went on vacation. So they said, go down and help them at the, at the Beechcraft store. So I went down and they came to me and they said, there's a fellow that wants to trade a, trade a, um, a jet commander in and buy a King Air. And I said, all right, well, let's go look at the jet commander. So we looked at the jet commander and I called a friend of mine and typically the way we did it, if we didn't know or had expertise, we'd call a guy or two or three guys and say, I have a 1976, whatever, whatever, whatever. And then what's it worth, you know? And they'd give me a price and you'd go back and you'd take some off of it to be absolutely sure that you couldn't be wrong. And you'd quote that to the guy and we worked out a deal, made the deal, forgot about it. Two and a half weeks later, we had made a deal on an airplane that was coming in, you know, that was a king air that they were building. It was almost finished. So <laughs> two and a half weeks later, there comes this loud screaming, gnashing, terrible no calls from the, the Beechcraft people that they want to know what the hell they're going to do with this jet commander because I had no right to trade the jet commander since I wasn't the true and correct sales manager down there. So the, the, they decided they were going to make an example out of me. So... I said, okay, I'll, I'll just commit for the airplane right now. You know, it's a, it, it seems to me it was something like $90,000 that we'd offered for the guy. But this is $1970 and $69 or $70. It would be 1970 So the guy says, oh, you can't do that. What are you, how are you going to come up with 100 Anyhow, so I called up the same friend of mine that had given me the net price uh, on the airplane. And I said, look, I'm kind of in a spot. Uh, these guys don't think we can get this kind of money and they're backing up on the trade-in for the King Air. And uh, I said, can you get me a commitment? And they said, sure. So the fellow's name that, that I was dealing with was a guy that's been in the business and that I learned from from years and years and years. His name was Jack Wall. And he gave me his word that he would come up with the money. You know, So I told him, I said, we'll have the money for you tomorrow. There's no way you're going to have the money. I said, I'll have the money for you tomorrow. I said, where do you want it? And they gave me wire transfer information, and Mr. Wall had that amount of money that was needed, wire transferred in, and, and uh, it was taken care of. So he put an extra amount of money in that thing for me because I told him that when all this came out, it was like I, I wasn't putting up with all this baloney any longer, so I was going to go ahead and throw it back out on my own, go back to Baltimore. The next Monday at the meeting, when they said that they couldn't make any, you know, they couldn't make any commitment at this point again, like they said every Monday, I said, no, I'm gone. So we yanked the trailer out of there and had it shipped back to Baltimore. And I jumped in my car and drove back to Baltimore. And, and we set up, which is now Gardner Aircraft, so we set that up in 1970, whatever it was, one, two. And um, 
and the and the money from the King Air Jet Commander deals was the first money that was in the bank account to get me started, and we built it from there up on Dorsey Road at Baltimore. And in 1978, I bought a paint shop in Sanford. When we set up, set that up in 1978, Sanford Airport didn't even have a terminal building. All they had was a, a, a fuel shack, and the, the trucks were parked outside. And I commuted back and forth. I'd come down every Thursday and go back every Sunday. I bought a house here in, in Longwood in, in 78 when I bought the paint shop. And then I just had houses at both ends, so we just commuted. You know, come down every Thursday. I'd, I'd get things cleaned up, the, up there on Thursday morning, and by noon I, we'd jump in something and then fly down here and then do the payroll on Friday and pay the guys at the paint shop and then take Saturday off, and then on Sunday we'd get in the airplane and fly back to Baltimore. Yes, that's flying from Baltimore, Maryland to Sanford, Florida, which is just a little short of 1,000 miles each way. Every week. No biggie. Ran the paint shop here, and I had a charter operation up in Baltimore and a sales operation. And I couldn't be a Piper dealer at Baltimore because there was already one at Martin. So I went over to Delaware, little airport just the other side of the Delaware line, and I rented the airport. And then I could be a Piper dealer there. It gave credibility, and I liked the product, and, and we, it helped us to buy the airplanes that we needed at cost also. By that time, I'd been in the business for 10 years, and I had a pretty decent following, and you know we could make a decent buck, mostly on the used airplanes. I mean, the new airplanes would beget the used airplanes because you'd trade something in, and you'd be able to make a profit on the trade. We had more used airplanes than we had new airplanes, but... Uh, we, we used to go, there was a time when, after I went back to Baltimore, we had uh, an auction, an airplane auction at Cape Girardeau, Missouri, the second Tuesday of every month. And we would jump in an airplane and fly to Cape Girardeau and then do the auction the next morning and then either buy or sell or whatever we needed to do or both, and then turn around and fly home. There's a lot of stories about <laughs> just that alone is enough to scare one to death. I bought an old Bonanza. And, and flew it home, and uh, it was just an exciting ride home. It had no equipment in it at all, and it was wintertime, and it was snowing. And I mean, I was looking and looking and looking for places, you know, where I was, and all of a sudden I, hopped, I looked over, and there was a damn VOR sitting right in front of me, the big old, you know how they used to look like with the big white snow cone. It took me a minute to figure out which one it was, and then I, I could talk, and that's, that's about all I could do. Nothing worked. Using a VOR station as a landmark for navigation, not the instrument itself, is definitely a pretty interesting approach to finding your way home. After having businesses all over the east coast of the country, Phil started to consolidate his locations. I moved down full-time in 81. I shut down the leasing company and the 135 operation. 135 operations are just certified uses for aircraft to make money. We had uh, two Navajos and a twin Comanche, and we leased a Baron. And our main, our main business in the 135 operation at the time, was the mid-70s, was um, uh, parts for General Motors. And we'd fly parts all over, the, all over the country. I bought my place in Spruce Creek in 91, and so we moved to Spruce Creek in 91. And this office just happened to be available, which just was a piece of luck. And, uh, and we moved in here in 95 or 96, I can't remember somewhere around in the mid-90s we moved into here and we've been here ever since.
Phil Gardner still sells airplanes today with his company, which is located in the Spruce Creek aviation community. Gardner Aircraft Sales is primarily a used airplane broker now. They are hired to list postings on their website, which is really nice, and other aviation classifieds like controller, barnstormers, and many others. You can check out pictures and information related to this story, along with more details about Gardner Aircraft Sales by going to the article at thelogbookpodcast.com. This episode was supported directly by your donations. If you enjoy the show, you can support its production by becoming a patron. Through Patreon, you set a donation level that is given every time a new episode is released, and you can always set a monthly limit so you don't go over your budget. Depending on the amount donated, you are granted access to different rewards that are as simple as hearing a sneak preview to the next episode, all the way up to exclusive content that didn't make it into the show. Any amount is helpful, and the more that's donated, the more the show can improve. Head over to our website, thelogbookpodcast.com, and click on the Patreon banner at the side of the page to start supporting. Also, don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps bring awareness to the logbook. If you have a story about anything in aviation, we would love to hear it, and it may even become an episode of the logbook. You can send us an email by using the contact page on our website. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you come back for the next entry in the logbook.